following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Boys and girls, when your parents have to discipline you, they spank you or they send you to your room, that's not the last thing they do, is it? I hope. Uh, they sit down with you and they, they try to explain to you from the Word of God that uh, why what you did was wrong and what should be your response to that, that you should be sorry for what you did and make confession to God and to a brother or a sister or your parent or whomever against whom you sinned. Because all discipline within our families is a discipline is always to lead us to repentance. Discipline is never an end in itself. And that is certainly true, as you know, of God's discipline. Now, God's discipline uh, is more in the complexity of his wisdom than chastening us for particular sins and bringing us to repentance. And that's one of the great lessons that we have in Job. But indeed, it is for that as well. And God does chasten us. He disciplines us for the purpose of repentance. And this is what Zophar now is driving at in the second half of his first speech. Remember Zophar, he's the youngest of the three friends. He's been sitting over in the corner, not really listening. He's been scribbling down his answers. He's the youngest. He is uh, hot-headed. Um, he's arrogant in his response to Job. And so he, he responds to Job with the pride and prejudice. He puts Job down uh, uh, for his speeches, saying, you're simply trying to overcome us. You're just a, a windbag. You're trying to overcome us with your words. Uh, he accuses Job of um, sinning because he said that uh, his doctrine is pure and that he's innocent in the eyes of God, confessing that he held to the orthodox faith and that he was blameless as Noah or Abraham uh, would be uh, blameless. Um, and then he calls on God in his arrogance to take his side against Job as if he he exalts the sovereignty of God and then claims he knows God's mind. And then we have this beautiful description of God's attribute of infinity. And that's one of the remarkable things that the wisdom of the Spirit does in this book. Remember, it's wisdom literature. And even in the speeches of Job's friend and in Job's speeches, where he doesn't stray from the truth as much as they do, but uh, in all these speeches, they're great elements of truth that God is teaching us here. And it's in the context of Zophar's first half of his response to Job that he sets forth this beautiful picture of the infinity of God and then of our need to come before him in humility, knowing that he then will judge and that if one is not quickened by the Holy Spirit, he's no smarter than the foal of a donkey. Now, with those words, and I'll come to this in the next sermon, um, I think he's really accusing Job of being the foal of a wild donkey, a hollow man. But uh, he continues now uh, in speaking to Job, having 
spoken of God's investigation that his justice is pure and perfect, he, he calls Job to repentance. Now, of course, that's his error. This is what one writer calls the system. Their system was that if you're suffering the way Job was suffering, then you are indeed a wicked person. And so he's calling Job to repentance. But what I want you to see here is that what he says about repentance is as true as what he says about um, the infinity of God. He says it in the wrong way. He says it with wrong applications and implications. But there's very good instruction for us here with respect to repentance. So we're going to consider the nature of repentance, the encouragements for repentance, and the warning or danger of impenitence. We begin then with this call to repentance in verse 13, where he begins, If you would direct your heart right, spread out your hand to him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. Do not let wickedness dwell in your tents. Now, in these two verses, uh, in this call to repentance that uh, Zophar gives to Job, he really lays out, or we can break out of that, four elements, four very important aspects of repentance. And the first is repentance must be a heart act, a heart act. So uh, he begins uh, in the first line of verse 13, if you would direct or establish your heart right. You see, this is not a matter, repentance is not a matter of moral uh, reformation. Repentance is a matter of heart transformation. Repentance must come up within us, with that which Paul refers to as a godly sorrow for sin, where we uh, seek to direct and establish our hearts then to seek God. Samuel will say to the people in 1 Samuel 7, 3, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods, the Ashtaroth from among you, direct your hearts to the Lord, and serve Him alone. He will deliver you. So you see, to return to the Lord with all your heart is to direct your hearts toward God, toward the desire to serve Him. And so repentance must always begin in the heart. It's a heart issue. It's the place where we search ourselves. By God's word, we examine ourselves that we might know who we are, that we might truly, uh, out of sorrow, seek God. Now, how do we seek God? That's the second thing that he lays out for us in the second half of verse 13. And spread out your hand to him. This figure of speech of spreading out the hands is used throughout Scripture to uh, refer to uh, intensity of prayer. In Psalm 143, 6, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul longs for you. The stretching out of hands is put for prayer is a very important reminder to us that we come to God as whole people, not as disembodied souls. And that's why at Antioch we seek to practice some of these things with respect to posture because there is this unity within us, that if we're really going to pray to God, we're to pray to God with our whole person. So Zophar is saying that from the heart now you see God by praying intensely to him. You see, this is not a, a lackadaisical prayer. It's not a formalistic prayer. No, from the heart, we, like David, as he expresses himself, stretch out our hands because our souls long 
for God. And that second part of repentance then is earnestly seeking God in prayer. As by passing, let me mention to you, this is one of the reasons that we have begun as a congregation to stretch forth our hands in receiving the benediction. You see that relationship between the commandment here, in prayer, stretch forth your hands, and what we're seeking to do uh, there. There's biblical warrant then for that which we are doing. And if you can do that in good conscience, we want you to join us in doing that. So repentance is a heart work. Repentance is a prayer work that we are seeking God in prayer. And then we see in the first line of verse 14 that the purpose of repentance is to turn away from sin. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. You know that in the Bible, hands are often used to talk about the actions of the person and put for all that we do because hands are so often the instruments in everything that we do, whether it's good or bad. And so here he's referring to the idea of iniquity being in our hands. Now, our hands that we stretch out in prayer must come with a desire to be pardoned and delivered from the sin so that we're not coming in repentance as hypocrites. We're not coming in repentance clinging to sin or practicing a particular sin. No, we're coming uh, in repentance um, we're coming in prayer with a hatred of sin. Remember what the psalmist says in Psalm 66, 18? If we regard iniquity in our hearts, he will not hear our prayers. And so true repentance comes from the heart. It comes in earnest seeking of God in prayer. It comes with a desire to be delivered from sin. Not holding on to sin. And then with that comes a resolution not to continue in sin. That's the fourth thing that we have here in verse, second half of verse 14. Do not let wickedness dwell in your tents. Tents are put here for habitation. We're going now beyond the fact that we want to forsake a particular sin. We're coming now to a matter of lifestyle. We're coming to talk about what we refer to as mortification. Zophar is telling us by the Spirit that we're not to make friends with sin, that we're to have no habitual sins in our lives, uh, that sin is not to mark our lives, remembering those warnings that Paul gives to us, that if we practice sin, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so he's saying that he, you come to God repentance, you're coming hating sin. You're hating the occasions of sin. You're hating the temptations to sin. You're removing yourself from uh, circumstances that would uh, compromise you in sin. And not just in your own actions, but particularly heads of households uh, and elders in the church, that we also come with a resolve that we're not going to allow sin to be in our dwelling. Notice it's more than just the psalmist, or, or than so far as the individual. Do not wickedness dwell in your tents that reminded me of what David says in Psalm 101 right after the Messianic Kingdom Psalms I will sing of the loving kindness and justice to you O Lord I will sing praises I will give heed to the blameless way when will you come to me I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart 
I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fast its grip on me. A perverse heart shall, not de shall depart from me. I will know no evil. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. Of course, David is speaking in, in a twofold sense, isn't he? He's speaking of his kingdom and how he would seek to root out evil. But for that to happen, he has to first root out evil in his own household. And that is a further act of repentance, that I'm not just turning away from one particular sin. I'm not coming to God as a hypocrite holding on to some sin. But no, repentance is a resolve to put away all sin. I read these words and I'm reminded of what we're taught in our catechism. What is repentance? Repentance unto life is a saving grace wrought in the heart by the spirit and word, whereby out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also the filthiness and odiousness of his sin. And upon apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, so he grieves for and hates his sin as that he turns from them all to God, purposing and endeavoring constantly to walk with him in all the ways of new obedience. You see how these four aspects of repentance that are laid out by Zophar are reflected in larger catechism 76. We are to seek God from the heart. We are to seek God in earnest prayer. We are to seek God with a desire to put away a sin or sins. And we're to seek God with a holy resolution that we're not going to live in sin. We're going to practice holiness. Now, he wrongly applies this to Job. But we surely understand that all of us must be practicing repentance. And we see the wisdom that the Spirit gives us in these directions. But you know, it's, it's not just enough and never is enough for God in the Bible to uh, call us to particular actions. God so often encourages us. Um, he motivates us. He, he gives us promises. And once again, as Zophar now is dealing uh, with Job, hoping what he thinks is breaking Job's hard heart, he enforces now uh, this call to repentance with encouragements or, or promises or, or motivations. And there are a number of them then. Um, in verses uh, 15 through 19. And notice, boys and girls, if you've got your Bibles open, the, the grammatical construction that I'm sure you're learning in school. You, verse 13 and 14 begin with if, and verse 15, then. Now, when you have an if-then, you know exactly what God's doing. He's laid down certain conditions, and the then speaks then of the consequences or result of those conditions. And that's what Zophar does now with this series. In the first place, the first half of verse 15, he says, If you repent, you can lift your face without moral defects. Now, in this section, he's interacting with Job's uh, lamentations. And, and Job has lamented in chapter 10, verse 15, If I am righteous, I dare not lift up my head. I'm sated with disgrace and conscious of my misery. Should my head be lifted up, you would hunt me like a lion. And here Job is lamenting the fact that he, he, has, he has no peace with God. He is, he's, he's at shame. He, 
He can't even lift his head. There's just no dignity left to him before God. But Zophar says that if you repent, you can lift up your face without defect. How true that is. You understand this, that the guilt of sin does what? It causes your head to droop. It causes you to um, know that you cannot look. I mean, again, boys and girls, sometimes your parents correct you, and, and y you know you've been wrong, and you don't want to look up at them. You, you look down. They say, look up. Look them in the eye. And uh, that's what shame does to us. What Zophar is really promising here is peace. And, of course, we think of what Paul says then in Romans 5, 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And we can't lift up our faces then if we repent. Because we will have an assurance of our consciences that our sin has been pardoned. And that God has accepted us. Now, closely connected to peace is reconciliation. He says then... Uh, you would be, in the second half of verse 15, you would be steadfast and not fear. Now Job, at this point in his life, was full of fear. Um, he says in 934, Let him remove his rod from me. Let dread of him terrify me. Earlier in chapter 7, he explained his troubles and woes, that, he had a, that a dread of God is what gripped him. And it wasn't his physical malady at this point, you understand. It was uh, the God whom he, he knew as a friend was now his enemy. And God had set himself at enmity with him. He says in 6.4, For the arrows of the Almighty are within me, their poison my spirit drinks in. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. So Job had this dread because uh, he thought God had become his enemy. And that's because he also, to some degree, had bought into the system. Uh, he was escaping it. But, you know, what's going on here? He had been the friend of God. But you see how true it is that if we repent, we're reconciled to God. Think of those words in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He's committed to us the word of reconciliation. As the apostle uses this word reconcile and reconciliation, he's teaching that because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, God has laid down his enmity against us. God has declared himself to be our friend. And thus, when you repent, you do not need to be in dread of God because you repent in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know that you are reconciled to God. Uh, next, he tells us that uh, if you repent, you will have comfort. Verse 16. For you would forget your trouble. As waters that have passed by, you would remember it. Now, it's kind of a, a strange play on words. Uh, the, the figure is, if you, again, children, if you stood on the bank of a stream or a river, and it's moving along, and you threw in a stick, how quickly that stick would, would disappear. And thus the, the quick flowing river is, uh, in a sense, a sign of forgetfulness, of not remembering something. And that's the figure that he's uh, expressing here, as, as our Bibles translate it, 
as the waters pass by, you will remember it. So namely, as quickly as the stick is gone, that's how quickly you would remember. Otherwise, you're going, you, you will forget. Now here he's talking about the comfort that, that comes to us um, in repentance. Job said that he was unable to forget his troubles. He was, in, in, in 927, he was far removed from, from the comfort of God. But God promises in Isaiah 65, 16, because the former troubles are forgotten and they're hidden from my sight. Now, when it says that they are forgotten, of course, God forgets nothing. And we don't forget the pain of our sin and its consequences. But we also know that in that we have comfort. As, as we heard in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Now, it's good for us to remember our past sins. The psalmist mourns over the sins of his youth. I do. I mourn over sins of middle age and old men as well. Um, we think of past sins and it brings us grief and it should bring us grief, but the pain is gone, you see. And the sorrow is alleviated when we ask God for uh, forgiveness. And so it's a bit like the figure the Savior uses with the woman that while she's in the midst of the throes of giving birth to a baby, and the pain is awful. But as soon as the baby's born and she holds the newborn, uh, she forgets. Now, she knows she was in pain, but the, the immediacy of that pain has been removed. And that's the comfort of the gospel. You understand when you repent that God truly, in receiving you, will, will give you comfort. He will tell you he remembers your sins no more in the sense he will never again visit the consequences of those sins upon you. I mean, he's going probably not the best way to put it, never again going to visit the guilt of those sins upon you. You might live with the consequences. Uh, and what Zophar is, is foolishly promising is that everything is going to be erased. Uh, and you'll go on back to actually what you had before. Now, with this comfort, also with uh, repentance comes joy. Verse 17, your life would be brighter than the noonday. Darkness will be like morning. Again, Job had complained about the darkness of his soul, the darkness that engulfed him. He spoke of the darkness of death at the end of chapter 10. And in responding to that, Zophar says, if you repent, then your life will be brighter than noonday, brighter than the noonday sun, and darkness like morning. That the, in other words, there can be no darkness. Now, in the Bible, the light of God refers to the presence of God and to joy. And again, you've had days on end in the winter and it's been dark and dreary and you walk out one morning and the sun's up and your heart leaps with joy. It's this relationship, you see, of light and joy. And it's the light of God's countenance as we receive that benediction the Lord caused his face to shine upon you. That's what God does when you repent. He receives you. His face shines on you. He restores your joy. And then he says that um, another consequence will be 
that uh, you will be preserved and protected. Uh, verse 18, you would trust because there's hope. You would look around and rest securely. You would lie down and none would disturb you. And now here is the figure that goes back to what Job's just suffered. The, uh, the murder, the pillaging, the robbing, robbing of his uh, possessions. But um, if he repented, he'd be made to uh, rest in God and he would be secure. So he could actually lie down and he would never worry again about anybody bothering him. Now here you begin to see where Zophar really goes over the mark. God has not promised us when we repent that he will free us from a physical distress and affliction. In fact, oftentimes, as you well know, you repent and you will actually go through more physical distress and affliction. But what we can take out of the truth of Zophar's remarks is that there is a holy preservation. Because God says he will never leave you or forsake you. Even though uh, the mountains quake and fall into the midst of the sea, you can be still and know that he is God. In the midst of those sorrows, you have the certainty of preservation, and particularly then that no one can take your eternal life away from you. There is the trust that is in hope. He who's begun a good work in you will bring it to completion if you repent. And then one other thing he has here is that God will make you useful if you repent. And so the end of verse 18, and many would entreat your favor. Early on, Job, and later as well, will tell us how he was a ruler in the gates and people entreated him. They came to him for judgment and how he meted out compassion and justice and judgment to all who needed it. Now he was uh, rejected, even his, his housemaid. Uh, despised him. None would come unto him, he says later. And what Zophar said is that, you know, if you just repent, God will restore you uh, to your former estate. Now, God doesn't promise that, but he does promise usefulness to all who repent. We've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. In our place, in our calling, repentant Christians can enjoy the reality of being used for God in the context where God has placed us. It might not be important in the eyes of the world, but it's very important in the plan of God. Now you see, these are all excellent encouragements why we should repent. Stripped away from Zophar's error, you understand that when you repent that God gives you the peace. God gives you reconciliation, comfort, uh, joy, protection, usefulness. But there's one more in the greatest motive for repentance that uh, Zophar doesn't yet know about. And that is, as it's expressed in our catechism, you remember there's two things you must know? You must know the vileness and heinousness of your sin, and what else? The apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. That is the greatest encouragement to repent. That God never turns away a sinner who seeks him in this way from the heart in urgent prayer, wanting to put off sin, wanting to mortify sin in his body. And around him, you look to Christ. And it matters not how wicked you've been 
what a hypocrite you maybe have been. You've been a hypocrite and Satan whispers in your ear, it's too late. It's too late. I remember my whole Christian coming to Christ happened in a very condensed period of time. Sometimes God does this over long periods of time. But I had determined I'd live a Christian life. I did that for three days. I then was involved in church and youth group. And then I was living with my friends again. And I was in church, particularly on the Lord's Day evenings. And I was convicted of being a hypocrite. And then came the whisperer. You can't do anything now. They all think you are a Christian. They'll laugh at you. That was the lie of the devil. Other times it is, it's just too late. You have been too deceitful and, and too evil. You're never too evil. Not if your heart moves in you for a desire to be right with God. You understand that you repent conscious of the fact that God receives sinners for Christ's sake. You can't out God's grace, you see. And so God urges us to live with a confident repentance as we rest in Christ. But there's also a warning here, a direful warning in the very last verse, and that is the warning of impenitence. But the eyes of the wicked will fail. There'll be no escape for them, and their hope is to breathe their last. The words parallel what later God will declare it through Moses as a covenant curse in Deuteronomy 28. Among those nations, after the dispersion of the people for their sin, uh, you'll find no rest. Um, there'll be no resting place for the sole of your foot. The Lord will give you a trembling heart. You see how this parallels all these negative things that repentance delivers you from. But then um, you'll, 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 you'll not deliver from these things, that, and you'll have the failing of eyes and the despair of soul. The eyes of the wicked will fail. Uh, there's perhaps two things involved in this figure. And the one, fail with longing. You know, sometimes you've, you've stared longing to see something and how the eyes grow weary. Or perhaps the psalmist often uses this figure, uh, fail with weeping. You, you wept so much that your eyes have failed. But it's interminable. Uh, there's, there's no relief for the weeping of the impenitent. That's what he's saying. Your eyes will fail and there'll be no escape. In fact, the only escape is death. Their hope is to breathe their last. But of course, that's no escape, is it? The wicked might live free of God's judgments in this life. But there's a judgment waiting. Their eyes might not fail in this life. Uh, they're not they might not think there's no escape for them in this life. They might even think death is a release in this life or from this life. But for the wicked, death is but the entrance into hell. Where then the eyes will always fail. From where there is no escape. And it's eternal death. Not just for a thousand years. Not just for some interminable period of time but forever. Matthew Henry makes this little warning. Those that will not fly to God will find it in vain to think of flying from Him. I hope that does not signify any of you here this morning. You refuse to fly to God. You cannot flee Him. You cannot flee the execution of His wrath. 
And that's why today is a day of salvation. It's not something we put off. It's not something young people we wait to do later in the future. No, now, today, be sure that you are resting in Christ alone. Otherwise, what so far describes here will be the reality. Maybe not in this life, but for all eternity. And so the Holy Spirit here teaches us a great deal about repentance, wrongly applied by Zophar, and yet much truth for us as we sit here today. To examine ourselves, have we truly had this repentance, this uh, awareness, this knowledge of the heinousness of sin, its vileness, its despicableness? Do we hate it because God hates it? But do we see the mercy of God in Christ and turn from it, not just once, but daily and often each day? This is the repentance that's necessary to come to Christ. As we read in our Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 14, the discussion of repentance. We're told about its importance and its relationship then to uh, the gospel. Although repentance be not rested in as any satisfaction for sin or any cause of the pardon thereof, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ, yet it is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. I hope you understand this. There's today much of the false gospel that's being uh, promulgated in our land and throughout the world. Just believe on Jesus and all will be well. Well, there's obviously a truth to that. There's a truth to what Zophar says to Job, but it's only a part of the truth, and it's a very dangerous part divorced from. You must know that you're a sinner. You must know that you're under God's wrath and condemnation. You must know that your sin is heinous in the sight of God. And you must want to be delivered from sin, not hell. You understand that? Now, we do want to be delivered from hell. But much more importantly, if you have true repentance, you want to be delivered from the sin. It's guilt, yes, but not just as guilt. It's practice. And this is why there's this discussion between which comes first, repentance or faith. The answer is yes. Saving faith is repentant. I see my sin, I turn from it, I take hold of Christ. But daily repentance is also necessary then. And I ask you, is this a significant part of your Christian experience, of your uh, practice, your, your devotions? Um, as we're again told in this chapter 14, paragraph 5, men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it's, it's every man's duty, every woman's duty, every boy and girl's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. Are you doing that? Is that something that's built into your spiritual exercises? Are you periodically examining yourselves by the law of God? Are you each day seeking to uh, bring to mind what sins you have committed and to turn from them with grief and sorrow? Particularly, we'll never repent of all of our sins. In fact, you have to repent of repentance because your repentance is sinful. But we repent in Christ Jesus. Repent as you commit sins. Take stock uh, during the day or at night or in the morning 
uh, of, of your life and repent. And then what does repentance always lead to? Confession. And so our confession says then, as every man is bound to make private confession of his sins to God, praying for the pardon thereof upon which and forsaking of them he shall find mercy. So he that scandalizes a brother or the church of Christ ought to be willing by private or public confession and sorrow for his sin to declare his repentance. So what that means is repentance always leads to confession. It leads to your confession to God, a wholehearted confession. But it also means that anyone against whom or before whom you sinned, that you must also then ask forgiveness. That is the confession that repentance produces. Now it is only on the basis of Christ Jesus that you and I can grow in the exercise of repentance. But God does call us to that. May he grant us grace to grow in the exercise of particular repentance and confession of our sins that we might grow in grace and godliness. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.